everyone, this is Maria Valdez from What's Up Public Health. And today we have our guest, Dr. Matt Kivanen, epidemiologist, researcher, and public health expert here to talk to us about the COVID-19 crisis in India, including the second surge, if there will be a third surge, and what is going on right now. So stay tuned. Today we have a guest, like always, we have Dr. Madhi Vanen. She's an Associate Professor in Health Promotion Sciences at the Mel and Enid Zuckerman College of Public Health at the University of Arizona in Tucson. Shout out to all the wildcats over there. She's a physician trained in India with an MPH and PhD in epidemiology from the University of California, Berkeley. She's the Director of the Global Health Training Program at U of A Tucson and serves as one of the PIs for the Global Health Equity Scholar Consortium in collaboration with Stanford, Yale, and University of California, Berkeley. She also directs the Fulgarty Fulbright Program for the University of Arizona, and she is the founding director of the Public Health Research Institute located in India. So Dr. Madhivanan, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, today, we're going to be talking for our audience, we're going to be talking a little bit of the COVID crisis in India and how that sort of developed, what's been sort of the reasons it's developed so fast, and sort of everybody, I think, was a little bit surprised of just how it, it just, one day from another, a lot of people were just like, wait, wait, I thought we were already fixed with this. I mean, many of people were like, well, the PM said we had defeated it, so Dr. Madhivanan, I want to ask you a little bit about that. And, and to start with is right now in India, and I know this is a very, very uh, short question, but it's very worded in the sense that it probably has a very heavy answer. So what is the present status of COVID right now in India and what's what's going on right now? Thank you so much, Maria, for having me. Um, it's a pleasure being here. Um, when it comes to the present status, India, as of yesterday, June 29th, had a cumulative number of 30.4 million cases of infections and 398,000 deaths. And it, uh, India added 45,951 new cases yesterday alone. So the seven-day average, moving average, when you think about it, is about 47,734 cases. So the highest number of cases actually um, in India happened last month. So when we talk about 45,000 new cases yesterday, compare it to 414,000 new cases in a single day. And that was on 7th of May. So 10 times more in terms of the numbers. We're talking about 400,000 cases in a day. Uh, the month of May has been terrible for India and we are still recovering from that. Since then, there's been a continuous decline in the number of daily cases. Um, India actually accounts for approximately 16% of daily cases reported globally. And we're talking about 21,000 cases per million. 
and when I was looking at what else is happening, so that's the number of cases. How can we prevent it? Vaccinations, right? We're talking about vaccinations everywhere. As of 23rd June, um, uh, uh, just last week, uh, 293 million doses of the vaccine had been administered in India, uh, which means about 51 million people are fully vaccinated. Now, when we think about it in the scale of things, that's only about 3.8% of the total Indian population who has been vaccinated so far. And uh, the other pieces that are happening right now is the place where I work in Southern India and some of the states are currently in the process of easing all the restrictions and they're coming out of lockdown, but some states continue to still be under very strict lockdown. So that's what's happening as of yesterday in India. Wow, it's surprising to me that you mentioned right now that May was one of the highest counts of COVID because I think that when March hit, it was really uh, surprising to everyone, but then you sort of stopped hearing about it after about a month or two. So I, I actually had no idea that May was the highest number. So that's, that's literally not too long ago if you really think about it. So that's right. pretty um, intense. So you mentioned the vaccinations and I actually wanted to get into that a bit. So exactly 3.8% is not quite a big number considering for herd immunity, you need 70 to 80% to really be out comfortable without worrying of transmission. Um, yeah. So the, the vaccinations, <clears throat> The rollout, the rollout was, there was a lot of controversy with the rollout of sort of, some people were saying it was done wrong, it was done good, some people were saying vaccinate everyone as soon as you can and have all these people in this room. So what happened with the vaccine rollout? How did it unfold and was it really efficient how it unfolded or, or how should it have unfolded? So before I get to the vaccine part, I just want to add to the numbers that you seem so surprised um, is we do not have accurate uh, data on the number of positive cases. We know that testing has been a huge problem in India. So we don't have enough numbers or accurate numbers. The prediction is that what you have now to what actually exists on the ground is 10 times higher, even in terms of the number of cases, number of deaths. So what I'm showing you here are just the official figures. So now you have to kind of calculate it's actually 10 times more than this. Yep, that's so, a lot. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, the jury is out on that still. So we really don't know. Uh, we'll probably get to know maybe a year from now what really happened. Uh, in terms of the vaccination rollout, I, I, I think when you look at how this whole pandemic was handled, it kind of gives us a lot of lessons, not just from how we message the communities, what we talk to people, at the same time, what was the government doing at the background and what was it presenting to the world mm. and in, in the global arena. Um, India was actually described around the world as a success story having recovered from the first wave last year, they resume normal life, economic activities, and even started exporting the vaccine early on. 
However, there were a whole series of errors that happened. And I mean, I, I can talk on this for days, but I'm just gonna summarize it for you. Um, one of the things that they did was instead of actually making sure that there was sufficient vaccination shots available for the local Indian population, in terms of this vaccine diplomacy, India started exporting vaccines. And this was in January and February, right? They started exporting it to all the different SARC countries. And at the same time, they did not place enough um, orders for the vaccination shots for its own citizens. And that, that's the part that everybody is still questioning. Why, what happened when the other part, other countries were coming to Serum Institute of India and placing their orders, India had still not placed its order for its own population. And whatever it had, it had already started to export. Um, and there were warning signs all along for, for India. It's just a matter of who looked at it, who acknowledged it, and who took it seriously. And, and that's where everything went wrong. Um, not enough orders were placed, not enough planning was done. We didn't prep for it. And then when US had an embargo on not exporting the raw material, which is needed for the vaccines to be developed in India, now everything came to a shutdown in India because they didn't have enough raw material to even come up with enough vaccinations that they had committed to the WHO for the COVAX. Mm -hmm. So vaccines couldn't be exported anymore, but they also did not have enough vaccinations for their own populations in India. And then the other big issue was they had two vaccines that were given emergency use authorization while one of it, which was being the indigenous Indian vaccination was still in clinical trials, but they went ahead and gave it an EUA. But when Pfizer applied for uh, approvals and when the other vaccines were being asked to be approved, India did not give it authorization or approvals. So there was again, this kind of a mismatch I mean, Pfizer vaccine was evaluated here and we knew how it worked, but you still are not gonna approve it in India? Well, one is in clinical trials. Well, while you were willing to you know, give approvals for a vaccine that was still in clinical trials. That makes no so, sense, yeah. So, so there are a lot of things that have happened and you know, it's a geopolitical kind of a situation. Um, Lots of things have gone wrong, and this should be a good lesson for the world, how not to handle a pandemic. Yep. And I think that I myself got the Pfizer. That's the one I got. I got it back in December. And yeah, definitely that was approved. And now actually is approved for 16 years and starting to research for younger. So that's quite mm -hmm. interesting that, that you, you mentioned that. So the vaccine rollout, like you mentioned, I think was a, a was very controversial. There was a lot of ups and downs. And I think it is a great example of how not to go about distributing a vaccine for a pandemic and, and even other vaccines where you're thinking of all the other vaccines that children's vaccinations and all that is definitely a way not to sort of go about it. So going a little bit back to September of 2020. So in September, the prime minister in India had mentioned that 
they had, like you mentioned, they had beat COVID, it was not done, they were fine. And then they opened the country completely, pretty much. So, and a lot of people though, still continued to question, why did it get so bad? What did India do or where did India go wrong? What caused this surge? A lot of people remain very perplexed about that. So where did India go wrong? Why did this surge even occur? So in January and February of this year, the, the national number of daily cases fell to under 20,000 from the peak of around 90,000 in September that you talked about. So Prime Minister Narendra Modi declared COVID uh, being beaten by March 8th of 2021. And all places of public gathering opened up. Soon people were not adhering to any safety protocols owing in part to the inaccurate and confusing messages that were coming from the leadership. Like I said, there were warnings all along. For example, in November of 2020, the Parliamentary Standing Committee on Health said there was an inadequate supply of oxygen and grossly inadequate government hospital beds. In February of this year, several experts from India actually spoke to the BBC and they, they feared an impending COVID tsunami and that article was published uh, talking about this. Then in March of this year, an expert group of scientists that was set up by the government warned the officials about a contagion variant of the coronavirus spreading in the country. Only for no significant containment measures being taken. So they knew about this Delta variant. They knew about how the virus was changing, but nothing was done. And even to this day, the government has not commented on any of these issues. India is an old culture. And one of the things about coming from an old culture is this kind of symbolism that people have, right? Um, symbolism takes over substance. It's given more prominence. And um, there, there is a politician in India by the name Shashi Tharoor. He actually so eloquently put down all the issues that were a problem for India, how the COVID kind of panned out. And um, some of the things uh, he said was how Narendra Modi's penchant for drama was on full display during these hard times. Uh, he had suggested on national television that people should bang plates together at a certain time, right? At an auspicious hour. And then two weeks later, he urged people to light lamps at a specific moment. And this is all symbolism. It's superstition, which took priority over science and scientific thinking at the policy level when it came to figuring out measures on how to confront the pandemic. Now, when we talk about doing all this in support of our health workers, do you know that 500 healthcare workers have died just for in this pandemic? And that's an underestimation just in India. You're talking about doctors and nurses. I had no idea. And I and like you mentioned, that's an underestimation. All the deaths in general are yeah. underestimation. And yeah. I can only imagine the actual numbers right. out there. Right. So the WHO mantra of how 
it kept stressing, WHO kept stressing about the containment strategy that required testing, tracing, isolation, treatment, right? We've heard this a million times. Mm -hmm. Only a few states in India actually followed it. And Kerala was a good example of it. Kerala did everything right. And the reason Kerala was so equipped and did so well was they had a Nipah outbreak before this. So they had prepared, their public health systems were put in place, their surveillance systems were put in place. So the earliest cases of COVID in India actually came in through Kerala. When all the people from the Middle East were coming back, Kerala did an amazing job of handling them, making sure that they were taken care of, testing them, isolating them. But not, not uh, you didn't see that kind of response in a lot of other states. Another big issue was centralization. In the first national lockdown, um, the Prime Minister Modi uh, announced in March of 2020, within four hours of a national lockdown, he, he, he wanted the entire country to shut down. And that whole process was so top-down from the central government, and they used this uh, epidemic act and the Disaster Management Act to do what they did, which caused so, so many problems for the ordinary lay citizen of India. Instead of allowing for the 30 Indian governments or the state governments, the authority to design locally relevant strategies and administrative measures, the central government decided to manage COVID by putting out this decree from Delhi and saying, okay, you're gonna lock down without any preparation, without any notice, in four hours, everything is shut down. Mm -hmm. Fast forward now one year, it had that happened March, 2020. Now, when you look at what happened, it was a disaster. Yes. People did not have food to eat. People did not have places to go. They walked hundreds and hundreds of miles to get to their homes in rural communities and they took the virus with them. And I, I think that that's a great point that you make because I, I tell my husband and then a lot of people that are outside the public health field, I tell them there is an art to opening back a country and to closing a country. You just don't open and close. It's not a door. It's, it's like steps and you have to have, and I think this really sort of highlights the importance of a social infrastructure and a public health uh, st structure, a public health system, you need to know what are you going, it's not about, and I think this happened a lot when I was seeing the news and everything, and, and I'm pretty sure yourself, is that a lot of people were saying, no, do not shut down the country because we will not have jobs, we will not have food. And evidently people did not have jobs and people did not have food. But, um, and, and I wanna see your point of view on this, but I feel that most of that was the error of decentralization of not having those systems in place in order for, for the country to be able or the states to be able to close down certain things but there was no social economic system or structure. There was no public health system. So evidently people were left with nothing. And that's why I say to, to a lot of people that uh, opening a country and closing a country is an art 
and even in the US, you have to know how to open it and close it. It's not just pandemic went away, now we open. And I feel that that's like you mentioned something that happened in India is that they opened and they're like, okay, open. And nobody followed any guidelines. And evidently what happened, it all went haywire. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think the part that a lot of people are missing is when these kind of decisions are made, these are not just political decisions. They have to be consulting a lot of other experts, public health. You need to involve public health. You need to have some value for public health. You need to be consulting with the uh, uh, economists in trying to figure out how can this be done in a manner that it will not cause the kind of disruption it caused. For example, as the crisis began to slip out of control in India, the central government passed more and more responsibilities to the state governments, but they did not provide them with adequate funding to support it. The state government struggled to mobilize doctors, nurses, health workers, testing kits, personal protective equipment, hospital beds, ventilators, oxygen cylinders, medications, I mean, it was a disaster every which way you looked at it. And in terms of the lockdown itself, what happened was there was a mass movement of over 30 million migrant workers going back to their homes in rural communities. And they had no provision whatsoever of even transportation or money to buy food. So it's estimated about close to 200 people died on their walks home during that mass exodus that happened. And about 500, uh, I mean, not 500, 5 million micro and small enterprises had to shut down. Yep. And they have not recovered from that, even to this day. And India's unemployment levels have reached the highest ever recorded. So this idea that India is an emerging economy, it's gonna be the next superpower, India can forget about it for now yep. because they have a lot of catching up to do in every which way you look at it. And this, this funds, based on this, people started to call out to others. I mean, in Indian diaspora here, trying to raise money for what's happening on the ground, uh, trying to mobilize ventilators and oximeters, um, it's, it's not going to change the scale of things that are happening in India, right? So the government mobilized a huge amount of funds, which lots of other governments, foreign governments and economies actually donated to this new relief entity called PM Cares. Um, it, it was set up. But even to this day, we have no idea how that money has been spent. There is no information. There is no um, any kind of transparency on where those funds have been allocated and who's using it. I think this is a, a great example of, again, how not to, to do a lockdown. Mm -hmm. And also that I think a lot of people got confused or, or were sort of blaming the the lockdown and the public health measures on why their economy and their businesses were closing down and i think sort of that was one of the the issues that also occurred because it wasn't that public health was was the one causing people to lose their their jobs and to not eat it was actually the opposite it was the lack of public health 
exactly. that caused people to lose their jobs and employment and all of that. It was the lack. It was not the actual lockdown or the public health measures. And I think that's how, and it matters because this is what changes behavior. And yeah. I don't think sometimes governments, especially India, realize that it matters because the behavior of people will change based on that. Well, one of the things we keep talking about is um, why, why, you know, why is it so bad? Well, the other issue is we haven't invested enough in the social support network. We don't have enough of a support for people uh, and you're on your own. As much as the government say, uh, has there been a stimulus? Has there been any kind of support for people who have lost their jobs? Has there been any kind of support for kids who have become orphans? Has there been any kind of support for women who lost their only earning member in the family, their husbands. And we haven't even talked about all the other ramifications. And these are like the immediate needs we're talking about. Complacency, right? We, when pandemics seem to have waned, the authorities kind of said, oh, we won this war, it's done. The Indian mythological story of the Mahabharata, they said, was one in 21 days or something. And we won this in eight days or something to that extent. And I was like, what a comparison to me. Yeah. A war and a pandemic. And there were no preventative measures taken, no planning for the second wave. And we are still talking about this and we know there's gonna be a third wave. And we know there's gonna be a fourth wave. And, and we still not prepared for any of that. Mm -mm. The, this lack of planning is very disturbing at all levels. Between the two waves of COVID, the government had time to prepare, to build up our medical infrastructure, to increase the number of beds, both and also streamline the supply of oxygen and ventilators and drugs. It had trying, time to procure all of these things and distribution of vaccines, but none of this was done. And then there was another huge issue where Supreme Court was forced to constitute a 12 member national task force to streamline and ensure effective and transparent allocation of oxygen on a scientific rational and equitable basis to states and union territories. Can you imagine? And this was all in the month of May. Yep, and I when, think- When the country was burning up yeah, exactly. When and that's you want to do that before, right? You don't want the country to burn up. You want to prevent the country to burn up. Yeah. But, and I think and that's you know, not even mentioning people over here. My husband, for example, couldn't even travel. And that's yeah. not even mentioned people if this even affected foreigners outside of their country. And that's a whole nother ball game and a whole nother issue in itself. Yeah, I've often talked about this for us Indian diaspora who are here. Um January, February was the time when all of us were getting vaccines here. And here we are pleading to people to get the vaccines. And then back home, we are seeing our loved ones dying like flies for the lack of vaccines. Mm -hmm. And for me, uh, it, it, it's this kind of sense of guilt, feeling privileged, being able to have all these resources, but at the same time, seeing that my family back home does not have this. And, 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 and that confusion, that anger, that frustration, that guilt, um, it, it, it eats you up alive. 
you know what is even more disturbing about what is so terribly wrong with how this pandemic was handled? The government has uh, taken on the construction of an uh, building, the new parliament building for $180 million. And you know what? They call that essential service. And this is happening while the country is in a lockdown. If they could use that $180 million towards the pandemic response, I am sure we can make a huge amount of difference. Yeah, and I think actually that's the mental health piece is is another thing too. I mean, many families right now have been stuck in their homes for months, if not longer. They've been separated with some being in different countries, some in the US, some over here, some in Canada, some in India and so forth. And some family members have even died without their families or loved ones being able to say a proper goodbye because the country went in flames. So so I wanted to ask sort of how do you think this is going to unfold? And is India prepared if right now there's not really a social structure or a social equity structure, but is India really prepared for a mental health crisis as well? Because I think that's something that hasn't been mentioned is that mental health probably is a huge struggle right now for a lot of people, not only in India, even outside, like you mentioned, some people do feel privileged. Some people feel even guilty for getting a vaccine because all your other family is getting vaccines with 80 days apart. That makes no sense. So the mental health crisis in India post COVID, how is is India really ready for that? You know, before I answer that question, my mother, she's in her 80s just got her vaccination like like last month and i here got the best vaccines as soon as they were available and and that kind of inequities it it's it's so unfair yeah it's so unfair and here we are pleading to people we're giving them million dollar lotteries to come and get a shot. And back home, people who need it don't even have access, even if they try to pay for it. I mean, it's this kind of, again, this global diplomacy about where the vaccines are, who should get it, when they should be given. We're not talking about it on the global arena. The, The developed world is hoarding so much vaccine while in the low and middle income countries, less than 1% of the healthcare workers have had access to this vaccinations, less than 1% of the healthcare workers. And these are the kind of things that, that really disturb me. I mean, if we really want an equitable world, it's not gonna happen if we hold the vaccines for ourselves and then we say, okay, we're gonna release 5 million doses or 50 million doses. Because the rest of the world, if if the rest of the world is not okay, we are not going to be okay. Because yeah. that virus is going to come here, no matter how much you're prepared for it. And the Delta strain is already here in the U.S. The strain in India is already somewhere here, wandering oh, around the U.S. It is. It's going to become the predominant strain. But wait for this. Now India has Delta Plus. Oh. That, now tell me, tell me how long it's going to be before it shows up here. Oh, not long, even with, and I mean, the thing is that you can only hold 
certain policies and travel bans in place for so long because of the global economic structure as well. So you can only hold those so long. That's why exactly what you mentioned, it, the more equitable global equity we have, the more economic positiveness, I guess, economic stimulus we will have, because at the end of the day, you can only keep travel bans and policies in place for so long. Yeah. Now, coming to this mental health issue that you asked me, the mental health issues in the context of COVID-19 pandemic in India is far more complex. Um, and that is due to the large proportion of socially and economically vulnerable population, high burden of pre-existing mental illnesses, constraints in terms of mental health service infrastructure, less penetration of digital mental health solutions, and above all, uh, this scare this that has been created due to this amount of misinformation on social media, right? There's been increased suicidal ideations and suicides, specifically among youth, uh, which is of a huge concern. And that has all been triggered due to the isolation during quarantine, just like you said. And clinical observations often show an increase in alcohol use, drug use. We have seen increased raises, uh, rates of violence, domestic violence. Um, and during the initial lockdown period under the mandate of the Ministry of Health and Family Welfare, three central mental health institutions, the National Institute for Mental Health and Neurosciences, in short, it's called NIMHANS, that's how we all know it. And then the Lokapriya Gobinath um, uh, Regional Institute for Mental Health and the Central Institute of Psychiatry. They all initiated national helplines to provide support for mental health concerns related to COVID-19. Then the ministry issued a toll-free helpline called the Behavioral Health, the psychosocial toll-free helpline number that anybody can reach. Guess what? It, it got so jammed that they, they, they couldn't handle the number of uh, calls they were getting, right? The industrial town of Jamshedpur, which is in the Eastern Jharkhand state, reported an unusually high number of suicides, about 100 suicides just in the last four months. And the health officials basically attributed it to anxiety and depression uh, linking to the ongoing pandemic. Mm -hmm. And the second wave, the suicide helpline across the country have been overwhelmed by calls from those whose lives have been affected. And several mental health experts have been trying to give talks. They're trying to share material on websites, social media. Some are also offering online consultations free of cost. Some applications um, have been used for you know, digital applications um, like the mindfulness application Headspace, mm -hmm. um, which can give you a year long free subscription but most of these mental health services remain inaccessible to the large population of India because 60% of the population still lives in rural communities. And another big piece that we are not talking about, the elephant in the room here, even without the pandemic, there's a huge degree of social stigma associated with being diagnosed with any kind of yep. mental illness. And, or even visiting a mental health professional. Forget about you being diagnosed. As soon as you even say something related to your mental health, they're like, okay, this person is mad. 
or you know everything gets locked down nobody wants to talk to you and 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 that level of stigma without pandemic now added on with pandemic um i don't know how we're going to deal with that some of the other important barriers there's an uneven distribution of mental health services there's economic inequality there's poor health there's poor digital health and the most important piece we don't have enough healthcare professionals in india to support the need <laughs> that we have uh, we don't have enough people so it, it i think what we need is a little bit more focus on destigmatizing mental health and making sure that people are aware that it is just like any other health related issue if you can go take medications for diabetes you can very well take medications for depression or anxiety we will have to bring it to that level in order for people to even start talking about mental health one of the studies that we are doing in india is we're trying to measure mental health issues in in women because i do women's health a lot of the women who were coming to see me would always come with saying i have back ache knee ache uh, all these kind of vague symptomatology they were basically somaticizing and all they wanted was somebody to talk to them and then we said okay let us try and figure out how many of them might have some mental health needs so we started looking at the instruments that were available to us and trust me when when i was talking about postpartum depression in pregnant women the most common scale that's used in india is called the epds scale i have two doctoral degrees i couldn't answer those questions yep and that then, happens often in in healthcare it happens often and i it's happened to me and in the us now i can only imagine in india where i see something and i'm like I have a masters and I I I can't I don't understand these notes. Exactly. And and you're asking these people to answer your questions in a language that they don't understand and has it been correctly validated in all these different languages that we use in India? So we did another very interesting study. In India we use this word tension. And 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 it's an English word. But you go into any part of India any part rural urban people will use the word tension and they will use it in english and that would be the only english word they would use but they would say i have a lot of tension in my life or i am uh, i'm going through tension now so we wanted to unpack the word tension and we did this with a anthropologist who is at oregon state university her name is joe weaver so we actually started to unpack we started from ground zero trying to understand what do people mean when they use the word tension in 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 expressing what's happening in their lives and we have brought it down from about 350 different reasons to 90 reasons and we're trying to kind of further try and understand what that word tension means so we are going back to ground zero and starting from scratch because we do not have enough instruments that we can actually measure these kind of issues and it's i think what you mentioned about the word it, it it's very important because if we we tie it sort of all back to the social stigma and everything is that there is symbolism a lot of symbolism and with mental health you have a lot of culture and then you have religion and yes. and more so in india where where that's so prominent and i think that yeah. the only way to start is from ground zero to start from scratch because it it's changing a mindset 
Yes. And changing a mindset is the most toughest things to do. It's, it's one of, I think, the biggest barriers when it comes to trying to give health to someone is changing those mindsets and not and focusing on the science and not the symbolism yes. uh, of what things matter. And with mental health, it's, it's a cauldron of all those things. And it just makes it even more difficult. It's interesting that that, that word is the one used. I mean, but words matter. And especially when it comes to looking at mental health, every little word sort of will sort of trigger and you'll figure out, okay, well, this and that and this, but I think it's, it's, it shows how the symbolism, culture, religion sort of all get mixed in with mental health, which is an actual medical issue. But mm -hmm. because there's so much symbolism and cultural and religion, the, the actual medical portion of it sort of gets lost and thrown sort of in the back. And that is, that's not good. Yeah. <laughs> we want it in the front. Yeah. We want it in the major front area even myself i'm hispanic and even even that is difficult for for my own culture to sort of understand and and figure out that it is a medical issue it is a medic just like diabetes that yeah. you can get medication anxiety depression it is a medical thing so now with with india now in its current status now um actually before we sort of go into the lessons that india could cure really briefly, we, there had been, I get, believe it was called mycomycosis, mucomycosis. Yes. And that became an issue in India. And then people started getting worried about that mm -hmm. uh, because uh, they weren't sure what was going on, how it was going on. All they knew was it was bad and it was super infectious. And, and they're like, okay, now I'm going to stay inside for that. So what is the mycomycosis? What fungal infection is this? So mucormycosis, sometimes it's also called zygomycosis, is, is, is a serious but a very rare fungal infection that's caused by a group of molds called mucormycetes. And these fungi actually live in our environment, particularly in our soil and in decaying um, organic matter like the leaves and the compost piles or on rotten wood. Um, they've been there all along. Um, but people getting mucormycosis happens when they come in contact with this fungal spores in the environment. And for example, the lung or the sinus form of infection can occur after someone breathes in the spores. Uh, and these forms of mucormycosis usually occur in people who have underlying health problems or who take immunosuppressive therapies so they're almost called opportunistic infections. Yeah. These are, in, these are not something that you would see if your immune system was strong. So for people who are on immunosuppressive therapies for some, some reason for you know, cancer, um, or if somebody is immunosuppressed because of HIV, they are more likely to get it. Mucormycosis can also develop on the skin if the fungus enters the skin through a scratch or a burn or some kind of skin trauma. And the first case of mucormycosis was described in 1855. So it's not, it's not a new, no, <laughs> new it's infection. Pretty old. We have known about its association with diabetes, poorly controlled diabetes since 1943, when it was actually reported in three cases with severe 
sinus, brain, and eye involvement. So none of this is new. And um, in 1953, they were able to also um, find several cases and they were isolated in the Indian forest soil. And in 1979, um, uh, one of the researchers by the name PC Mishra, he actually examined the soil from the mango orchards in India. Uh, and he was able to isolate the spores, which causes mucormycosis. So how is it connected to diabetes? How is it, is it because in diabetes there's high steroids for meds or how is that connected? So even before COVID-19 pandemic, rates of mucormycosis in India were estimated to be about 70 times higher than the rest of the world. Oh my. And it's not that it's unique only to India. This infection has been found in a lot of other countries, including Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, Russia, Uruguay, Paraguay, Chile, Egypt, Brazil, Iraq, Mexico, Honduras, Argentina. So you name it, it's, it's present, it's there. The one explanation for why the association has been remarkably high in India with the high rates of COVID infection, right? And high rates of diabetes. India is the diabetic capital of the world. If you don't wow. know that already. I did not know that, no. Yes, India is the diabetic capital of the world. So with high rates of diabetes, high rates of COVID and the indiscriminate use of steroids, we created a fertile environment for this to take off. And in it's only like last month, the Indian Council of Medical Research issued guidelines for recognizing and treating uh, COVID-associated mucormycosis. Even though mucormycosis has existed for ages and ages and ages. Yes. As of 8th of June, there were 28,000 uh, people in, in uh, 28 states that had confirmed mucormycosis uh, diagnosis. It's almost like an epidemic on top of a pandemic. Yeah. And, and hundreds of them have died. And for them, for these cases, these 28,000 cases, 86% of them had a history of SARS infection and 62.3% of them had diabetes. So there's your answer to it. Yeah, that's, I did not know that it was the diabetic capital and that, but at the end of the day, I think one thing that sort of highlights too is a lot of diabetes and is a lot of public health too, public education, education on how to manage diabetes, especially type one. Type one diabetes is very, very intense on how you manage it. Type two is as well. So think again, it goes back to the same thing. You need that public health system on top of the medical system, but also the public health systems to have that follow through and that follow up with that patient. And if in the US, that is sometimes troublesome. I can only imagine in other countries where patients just get lost, they get discharged, lost, and then the same thing happens over and over and over again, and it becomes a cycle. I mean, in my own house, my mother's younger, youngest brother died of type 1 diabetes. All my grandparents, all my uncles, and my aunt who have died have all died because of diabetes-associated complications every one of them in my family. Diabetes requires a lot. And if you don't have that structure 
both medically and public health wise, then yeah, it can be very difficult to manage. It's, and that's unfortunate because diabetes at the end of the day, it's a lot of the things that a cure can be prevented. Yes. I, I think that's what's even more uh, yeah. sad is that most of it can be prevented. Yes, I agree. So right now for everyone um, in India at home with their families, even from everyone outside as well, um, that, that is from India, what would you tell them to do right now with COVID? What, what stay in, stay out? What are the regulations right now? And who should they follow to? Here we have in the US, the CDC, um, the Center for Disease and Control, but over there in India, what should they do and how should they follow it? Or who should they follow? I, that's a very difficult question. <laughs> I bet it is. You know, the, the things we can do, there, there are, there's a lot of things that are out of our control, but there are some things that are in our control. One thing is we have to stay informed about COVID-19 and we have to learn about the factors that led to the second wave and ensure we don't repeat these same mistakes at an individual level, at a community level. We really have to remember that this virus is still present and it's not going away. Nope. Yeah, we will have to learn to live with it, but we will have to figure out how can we protect ourselves from it. Vaccines are really something we should be thinking about. It's really important to help communities in India get vaccinated, but at the same time, not to compromise on the basic public health measures that are free for all, and everybody can practice, which is hand washing, uh, making sure you're keeping distant um, and protecting yourself, wearing a mask, right? All of these things. Talking to friends and family who are reluctant and addressing vaccine hesitancy because social media has its downsides. Yes. And one of the big issue is this conspiracy theories that are flying around about how um, the vaccines are gonna lead to uh, sterility and how, how this is like some kind of a, a plan for the government to control you. I think some we need to be talking to people and educating them and demystifying this whole idea about how important it is to get vaccinated. And people need to take some responsibility um, for themselves. And when I say that, I'm saying, please continue to wear face masks. It doesn't cost much. Please wear it, practice appropriate hygiene and maintain physical distance if it's possible. And um, in some communities in India, they, they, you know, they have shown zero infections without even getting vaccines because they have followed these measures. So they are good examples right in our backyard that they can follow. Please stop having these gatherings election gatherings, social gatherings, religious gatherings, festivals, marriages. And if you are planning to gather, at least do it in a responsible manner. Uh, complacency and spreading of misinformation, every one of us has a role to play in it and we can all address it. And every individual family and community must have a plan in place to tackle these infections and prevent the spread in the future. It's doable. We just have to become more mindful about it. And what about, so one of the things that was mentioned in the second wave uh, was 
that one of the causes as well of a lot of the increase in COVID cases was home gathering. So I think people in their head sort of thought, I'm not outside, I'll stay at home. But at home, they had 25 people, 30 people. Uh, What about those gatherings at home? Can they just gather at home or? or... I, I think it depends on the region. You have to look at the local epidemiology of the situation you're in. And if you're seeing that the percentage positivity in the community is over 5%, you don't want to gather in any place if you can help, <laughs> yeah. right? I agree. Um, but, but India is a very social culture. We are a very cohesive culture. So we have to take that into consideration. When we talk about families, we are not nuclear families in most places. We are joint families. We live with our you know, three generations, multi-generational households. But if we can restrict it, knowing that, okay, you may have a grandmother or you may have a mother who has comorbidities. So if you can become aware, if we can educate and make people aware of giving power into their hands, I am sure they will be able to handle it for themselves. Right now, the reason people are gathering is because, because of this mixed messaging. It's all about not having enough information, not having correct information. The minute we empower every citizen with that information, I promise you they will, they will become more responsible. Right now, they do not have the information or it's just not being present in a way that they will trust you. So trust is very important. Trusted messages from trusted messengers. And and that goes without saying that that trusted messages with trusted messengers should happen at all levels in all parts of the world. It's not just restricted to India. Yes. And, And that's what we need. We need leadership at every level. We need the community to have trust in the person who speaks. So we have to empower these people, these key leaders in these communities or influencers is what I call them, give them enough information, empower them, provide them with the resources they would need in order to go into their communities and give out these messages in a manner that is understandable to their communities. So I think that sort of brings to to our final question is what lessons can India as not, not only the people, but the government learn from this pandemic would you say and i know that you're like wow that is a very loaded answer to a to a short question but what would you say right now with the third wave most likely coming and getting prepared to sort of do the same thing that happened in march what lessons can overall would you say the top two or three lessons that the indian government can learn from this prior pandemic well you're talking about the third wave coming i was just reading an article um there are children dying in Brazil right now. So the next, the third wave is going to be a a disease for children. That's going to be something that the whole world will have to deal with. What can we do? I think that there are some basic structural things that need to be done and it has to be done very quickly. Surveillance. We need to have systems. We need to strengthen our surveillance systems from the very local level all the way to the top. The government needs to stay up to date uh, on the evidence surrounding the disease and follow science. Please listen to the scientists. 
especially when other countries have used data to successfully treat and manage their outbreaks, we, we can definitely do it. The biggest thing that I would, I would recommend uh, to anybody who's listening is India needs to increase investments in its public health infrastructure, in testing, in genomic surveillance for early detection of outbreaks. A key factor in India's second wave was India was only sequencing 1% of the samples, only 1%. Now compare it to UK, they were, they were sampling uh, about five to 6%. So we really need to scale up our sequencing capacity and uh, there are gonna be more variants coming and we better catch them before they spread. So we really need to be investing in our infrastructure. Um, digital technologies have been harnessed, but I think what is important is government should ensure that when you use digital health technologies, I've had the same arguments here in the United States as well. When you are scaling it up, make sure that you are ensuring that populations have access to it and they know how to use it. Yes. India has to establish an evidence-based vaccination plan for efficient distribution and allocation. Um, it's, I second that one completely, completely seconded three, four times. <laughs> and, and this whole issue around resource constraints, we need to figure out how to make this happen. Many hospitals across the countries have experienced second wave, have run out of oxygen, essential supplies. We should be planning right now for the third wave. So that preparation, so all of these are at a structural level. At an individual level, I think the collective behavior plays a big role in both curbing and escalating. So a well-informed general public with high health literacy is really essential for um, handling this and bringing this under control. Strong leadership, regular communication. When I say regular, I'm talking about clear, concise communication that is repeated at all levels, giving the same message from trustworthy institutions, that will definitely change the mindset of people. Well, Dr. Madhivanan, thank you so much for, for joining us today and giving us all this great information and the preventative factors as well, what to do with the third wave coming and highlighting some of, I think, the biggest barriers that have maybe always been present, but now with the pandemic, they're extremely present. So thank you so much. Um, we really appreciate you here on the podcast. And once again, as well, thank you for all your work you do for your country and for the U.S. as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me.